This is exactly right. Welcome to My Favorite Murder, the podcast. What more do you want? That's Karen Kilgara. That's Georgia Hartstark. What more? Now, what more do you now, want? Now, what more do you want? Because we just gave you more, which is the introduction of our names. Right. Oh, a whole hour and 45 minutes of utter nonsense? Fine. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs> we'll just start talking. Here we go. Oh, your boyfriend wants you to turn it off? <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Put your headphones in and ignore that creeper. Ooh. Right? Absolutely. What's going on? I don't think anything. Have anything. I have a, not much. Oh, we have a merch sale going on. And we also am excited to say that we found out that so we had for sale the My Favorite Murder black and white pin, enamel pin that we were selling and we sold out of it. And yep. all the proceeds were going to go to Rain. Yeah. Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. Right. And so we sold out of the pins and we are donating 10 grand to yes. Rain. Rain gets 10 grand from you guys. Yep. Because you guys played ball mm -hmm. with this pin idea. Thank you so much. Yeah. We're so excited to be putting your money where we want to put it. Where our mouths are. <laughs> That's right. And so we're gonna get a whole new um a whole new batch in stock and then we're gonna pick another really worthy cause and we're gonna have all the proceeds of the next sale go to that. Yeah. So we're gonna keep doing it. So keep adding that my favorite murder black and white pin to your Yeti Truther shirt. Yeah. Or, or whatever. What, whatever you so chew <laughs> your dog collar with a thing on it. Right. I can't remember what the dog collars look like. And we'll give all the proceeds to a worthy cause. That's right. So that's exciting. Go to myfavoritemurder.com to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about no, it. No, you can't talk get at on, your computer. Get on your CB, <laughs> but sit in front of your computer so you can get... Okay, I feel like uh, we talked about The Sinner season one mm. when it was Jessica Biel as the star. She is now still the, I believe, one of the executive producers. Yeah. But it is now season three of The Sinner. Yeah. The great Bill Pullman is still the, the detective. Still being the creepiest creep. He is. He has got lower back problems that are that's impeding his ability to walk around freely. And it is the most amazing acting. A person that's he's like, I'm a beleaguered, of course, detective. But he's also such an awkward weirdo in it. It's yes. so it's so charming. But also in real life, I feel like I'd be like, I don't want you detecting my fucking shit. Are you seriously? I'd be like. Excuse me, could you detect over here in my in my boudoir? Uh, I love his thing. It's like he's damaged and yeah. he's hurt, but he's also noble and he's trying to right. fix something. Anyway, this season, season three, starring Matt Bomer, um, who you know personally, Georgia, from the Magic Mike series of stripping. <laughs> was uh, he in that? He was. Okay. At least in the Magic Mike part two. He's I, got that chiseled jaw thing going for him. Matt Bomer is Matt Bomer's so good looking, he looks surprised yeah. at, at how good looking he is. I bet he's so good looking that people were like, we can't give you like certain roles because nobody looks like you. Yeah, it's I'm I started having a hard time with this one. And then I went, this guy's such a good actor. He's overcoming his own face. Right. Which it looks like a poster for a, a like a diamond company. Yeah, your unfortunate, beautiful face. Your face that would stand in the way of most acting. But you're <laughs> good at it enough and clearly have adapted 
wanted in your life. Yes. Where your beautiful face isn't standing in the way, but also is adding to what a creep you are. Because also how amazingly creepy is Chris Messina? Yeah. Who plays the... Oh. He is such creepy a friend. good creep. God, he and also he wasn't really What's like he that. From? Well, he was on the Mindy Project. Oh, that's it. And he's been on a ton of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's usually the like hunky kind of the guy girls really? like. And then this thing, he reminds me of Zachary Quinqua. Pinto? <laughs> <Kinto>? Yes. <laughs> Are you well, French? I was like. Was it pinto beans or quinoa? <laughs> I couldn't remember. Um, uh, my claim to fame is that uh, one time in the early 2000s, I got to go. Uh, we went on a road trip with Zachary Kinto. Oh. Because we went to San Francisco for the weekend and Mary Lynn was on 24 with him. So oh, okay. he came with us and we had a whole weekend. It was he was the best. Love it. Um, anyway, all that aside. Uh Oh, yeah. So Chris Messina, the first moment he's on screen, like a door opens mm-hmm. and he's standing there. And I was like, I got a chill just by how he was like his. Affect was super fl- yes. He was like, like such a good villain. Yeah. It's it's so impressive. Anyway, I feel like it's like very no one's talking about it. it's a little yeah. bit unsung where it's like the sinner delivers every season. Yeah. I'm holding hands with it. <laughs> I'm caressing. It's it's a beautiful, unfortunate face. <laughs> Our, it has, I wrote down your unfortunate, beautiful face. That has to be the episode name. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. I mean, I don't like deciding this early. I know. And I don't take it away from Stephen because Stephen writes down so many great ideas. It, it's Stephen's passion to and read us his, his list of ideas. At the end of the show. And then we're like, when did we fucking say that? What's that about? What? If I was Stephen, I would start adding in random shit yeah. that we never said where it's like two burritos lying <laughs> side to side. Um, I started listening. I'm like... Three years too late, but I started listening to the podcast Ear Hustle. Yes. Holy crap. It's, I mean, I knew it would be. It's not like I didn't think it would be good. And now I know it's good because I'm listening. It's just really good. (laughs) Yes. And it's, it's basically daily realities inside prison and it's just what prison life is like. And I found out ear hustle means eavesdropping. Uh So just like talking shit and eavesdropping and stuff. It's really good. Also, I think, you know, podcasting is, we talk about this a lot, but it's so intimate. It's so personal. You're just on, or at least we are just on mic, like blah, blah, blah. Here's what we think about. Here's what we care about. What a fascinating thing to, instead of be always talking about people in this weird kind of objective, Mm -hmm. like distant way, people in jail who for whatever reason they get to tell their own yeah. story yeah it's really cool and empowering and and great yeah and even the mundane stuff that they talk about which isn't mundane you know the, the less like here's my story and more like here's how you get a uh, cellmate in prison and this is what it's like and yes. the whole episode's about that and it's like just fascinating yes I yeah. really like it it's very cool it's very humanizing mm. and very like you know you want to that's what all this that's yeah. why all this is so awesome right is because it's like then you hear that story and then you're like yeah you don't look at things the same way and people the same way totally very cool you don't judge people as much you can judge them a little (laughs) i mean like not everyone look it's it's hard to refrain from judgment (laughs) of ourselves of those around us of others um shit oh okay we have to do uh exactly right corner yes our podcast network we have a couple uh announcements this week's Murder Squad guest is none other than our very best friend, <laughs> Henry Zabrowski from Last Podcast on the Left. The greatest. Freaking adore. The greatest man. Such a great man. So that's on. They're talking about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, um, Monday, March 2nd. So that's up. 
this podcast will kill you just released a new episode about hepatitis C. Amazing. Those ladies are killing it. And just so you know, and if you don't know already, now you know, um, there, it, the, one of the last ones they did was all about the coronavirus. Right. So you have, if you're nervous and you yeah. want to really know what's going on, they, they broke it down. So what side of the, um, face mask are you on? Oh, oh, I'm in the inside of my house side of the face mask. Okay, you're, are you handshaking? Yes. Oh, so you don't care. I handshake, then I give a kiss on the mouth. I don't get what, then I, I can't suck, tell. Then I'll suck on your earlobe <laughs> lightly, just so you remember the exchange, while you die and I live. Because I'm taking in all bacteria, my immune system okay. can fight everything. Okay, you're getting little bits of it. Yep. Here and, and there, like, oh, I'm used to you. I get gas, and then I run my finger along the top. No, no, of no. The please gas don't nozzle. say what you're gonna say. Please don't say you lick your finger. You go out there licking doorknobs and shit. <laughs> sure, please though. Just for the love of the game. I'm pretty. I'm pretty okay with it right now. I mean, I'll get there. Let's wait until there's good reason, right? And look, there's always good reason for lots of things to freak out about. Lots of things yeah. in this world around us right now. Absolutely. So let's just so keep about it chill. Those. Yeah, let's keep it chill. Although I will say, was when I was leaving therapy this morning, I my therapist and I do a, a final hug. Oh, I mean, we've been I've been going to her for almost yeah. seventeen years. Yeah. So it's like, okay, bye, thank you. Quick hug and a cough right over her shoulder. Oh, and I'm like, it's like I'm, she burped you. Yes, and I. It it was the weirdest, like, I didn't feel it coming yeah, yeah. until I was doing it, and I couldn't stop uh. laughing. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, first of all, I'm not coughing yeah, yeah. as a practice. Kind of cough. It's not. That just came out. She wasn't mad. She's legally not allowed to be mad at me. <laughs> That's right. You pay her to not be mad at you. <laughs> the Percast, in a uh, interspecies cuddling turn of events, <laughs> has Brooke from the Fall Line guesting on it. Nice. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's awesome. And then the Fall Line themselves have uh, episode four of season six, the Town Jane Doe episode. So make sure you listen to that. They're doing the God the God's work. <laughs> Karen, tell us the next one. Oh, uh, do you need a ride with Chris Fairbanks and Karen Kilgariff? Right. The great April Richardson is featured on. She's visiting over here from um, her new life over in Brighton, England, and so she came over to do some stand-up s- dates. And um, so. And she's staying with me, so I made her do my podcast. <laughs> Hell yeah. And it was perfect. I mean, it wasn't very eventful, right, Stephen? We just kind of yeah. drove all around. Yeah, we just drove to Swingers. Yeah, that's right. Oh. And then we got there and then ate and then drove back. Guys, as of now, as of next Thursday, March 12th. Yes. The big premiere of I Said No Gifts with Bridger Weiniger. We're so excited. It's going to be so hilarious. Yep. Please try it out. Please um, subscribe to I Said No Gifts just because it'll push them up in the charts and then more people will see it. It'll be really awesome. And the premiere can be this big, exciting thing that is very well deserved. Yeah, it's very well deserved. And if you watch the um, Comedy Central show Corporate, yeah. the guest on the on the premiere episode is Matt Ingebretson, who's one of the two stars of Corporate. Corporate, along with Jake Wiseman, and he's a hilarious, amazing comedian. Yeah. He has a great speaking voice. I and love the, him. He's the two so of them have been friends for years, so it's a great episode. Yeah. Yeah. We're so excited yeah. to finally have that one come out. I know, it's so cool. And I remember they recorded that one and then Steven told me and he was just like, it was so good. And then I was just like, I knew, I just <laughs> yeah. knew, I knew, I knew, I knew it. So, yeah, yeah it's very exciting. Good. And now we're going to start rolling out the new podcast. Yeah. It's real cool. Things are moving and grooving. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Who's first this week? Karen. Really? 
If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in-network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea, because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional, and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. I'm sure you do this too on your social media, the choice you make Uh on social media. Instagram. Um, Instagram. I don't like to endorse it, but you can. Uh, (laughs) No, I am on Twitter. And so on Thursday morning when I wake up, I'll usually just kind of look at my Twitter real quick to see if anyone is screaming in all caps at me. (laughs) Just to do a quick pass of like, eh, excuse me yeah. whatever the excuse me pass and nothing was really happening and then I stumbled upon this tweet this was from someone named John Bird at Jaybird tweeted that's his handle his tweet said I love my favorite murder and Karen Kilgariff but uh-uh. yeah then you know the bad things coming I need to flag that Sally Ride was not on the oh, Challenger yeah. when it exploded <laughs> Ride was the first American woman to go into space and then there was more of the tweet but I had already left my body 
from what a fucking devastatingly terrible, stupid mistake that was. And that was one of those ones where it was a conversation and it just came out. Yeah. And, it, yeah. I, just, and I said, yes, because I, I do that to you all the time. Because <laughs> right? you're good at improv. You yes and me <laughs> right. and support uh, whatever comes out of my mouth. John, thank you, first of all, for being so such a gentle, corrective hand, because mm. it really it was the best way to learn that I had made. I defamed to heroic American women. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do when we're horrified and we leave our body? Yeah. Yes, we do a big old corrections corner. So this week I'm going to tell you all about the space shuttle challenger disaster. Hell yeah. You know that crossed my mind to do. Did you? hundred uh-huh. percent. Yeah. yeah. So no, I had to do, I had to do it. And Jay Elias, my researcher and our coordinator. What do we call him? A coordinator That's now? That's his title now. He has a title coordinator. Um, he did the research. History.com, space.com, Britannica.com, and of course... The best science website in the world. Wikipedia. <laughs> Please give them $5 if you can. But before we get into that, I would like to give you a quick uh, yet comprehensive report on the great Sally Ride. Great. So that you, I, no one ever makes this mistake again. Great. And this, uh, most of this information is from Wikipedia, as well as her New York Times obituary. Mm. She was born in Encino on May 26th. 1951. Her mother was a volunteer counselor at a women's correctional facility, and her father, Dale, um, was a political science professor at Santa Monica College, and she had a sister named Karen. No way. I went to Santa Monica College, too. Did you? Yeah. Was um was Professor Ride, did he teach you anything? No. Okay. Okay, so Sally starts playing tennis when she's 10. By high school, she's ranked in the top 20 in the nation for the junior tennis circuit. I don't know if you know how hard that is, Mm -mm. but there are people who are insanely great tennis players and they only get to like 800 in the rankings. So she must have been spectacular tennis and an amazing athlete. Um, She graduates from Westlake School for Girls in Los Angeles in 1968. She goes to Swarthmore College just outside of Philadelphia. But after three semesters, she, I think, gets homesick and moves back to California. That's editorializing. That's what I assume because she's just (laughs) like, this ain't for me. Yeah. So then she takes, she starts taking physics classes at UCLA and she wants, basically wants to play tennis professionally. Then in 1970, she transfers to Stanford. Hmm. So she's thinking about playing tennis professionally, but she's smart enough that she can just go, you know what, instead I'm going to go to Stanford. Wow. Yeah. Which is, uh, she must have been, obviously she's an astronaut. She's really smart. Uh, She becomes Stanford's number one women's singles tennis player. Holy shit. She even met Billie Jean King uh, while teaching a tennis camp in the summer and Billie Jean King told her to quit her job and go pro. Wow. That's how good she was, yeah. But instead, Sally stays at Sanford and she earns degrees in English and physics. Usually those are very disparate yeah. uh, subjects. The, the students do not hang out in the same right. area of the... Of the... Life. Uh, I was going to say <laughs> the snack bar of life. <laughs> snack bar. In the snack the bar. The canteen. You know the snack bar at Stanford? <laughs> pencils money money. yeah you can buy hot money in 1975 she earns her master's um specializing in astrophysics and free electron lasers Mm -hmm. oh i learned that at santa monica college (laughs) right remember when you dabbled in free electron (laughs) lasers 
And then she goes on to get her PhD in 1978. So she's the real deal. So while she's finishing her postgrad studies at Stanford, she applies to the NASA Astronaut Group 8 program. There are 8,000 candidates, and she's one of 35 accepted in this program. And only six women in the group total. Wow. Uh, She completes her training in August 1979. She gets her pilot's license and becomes eligible to be a U.S. space shuttle mission specialist. So on June 18th, of 1983, Sally Ride takes her first trip to space in NASA's seventh space shuttle mission, STS-7, aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger. She's the first American woman in space and the third woman in space globally. There were two uh, female Russian astronauts, cosmonauts, I think they call them, that got there first. Got it. But she is the first American woman. Cool. Um, So the point of that mission was to deploy two communication satellites. Sally operated the robotics arm that made the deployment. Of them. Could you imagine? No. Well, she also plays tennis with it. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you got a great swing robot. (laughs) It's like a very small asteroid comes by. She's like, guys, I got to take this. That robot. My God. Love or whatever. (laughs) Love 40. Yeah. In 1984, she again goes on a, a mission on the Challenger on NASA's 13th shuttle mission, STS 41G. Okay. If you're keeping track at home. <laughs> Between those two trips, she spends more than 300... Within those two trips, she spends more than 340 hours in space. Wow. She is in training for her third mission on January 28th, 1986 when the Space Shuttle Challenger explodes during launch. Mm-hmm. She, Sally Wright is appointed to the Rogers Commission to investigate the cause of the explosion. She's the only astronaut or specialist appointed to both this commission and later to the 2003 commission to investigate the space shuttle Columbia disaster that killed all seven crew members as it disintegrated upon re-entry into the Earth's yeah, atmosphere. Wow. So Sally Ride was there for both of those and <sighs> was in there, like there to investigate sure. both. She left NASA in 1987 to work at Stanford Center for International Security and Arms Control. In 1999, she becomes a physics professor at UC San Diego, and she dedicates her life to encouraging students, especially girls, uh-huh. to study math and science, developing programs under her non Profit Sally Ride Science. She even writes a couple children's books about space exploration. On July 23rd, 2012, Sally Ride passes away at her home in La Jolla, California from pancreatic cancer, which is horrible. She was only 61 years old. Oh, my God. In 2013, Sally Ride was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for all of her life's work, her extraordinary life's work. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of Sally Ride, the first American female astronaut in space. That okay. writes all the wrongs from last week. Oh, all, both of ours. I get it, too. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> Look, but later when I in in, uh, you know, putting this together, mm-hmm. saw that they both wrote on the challenger. I was like, this is my excuse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is my rationale. Take but, it. Grab it. Run with it. Right. Which would uh, would imply that I knew they were both on the challenger. Clearly. Which is completely impossible. No, you absolutely knew that. I absolutely knew it. I was 16 when the Challenger exploded, so I was very aware of yeah. it happening, but I definitely... Did you guys watch it in class, or were you too no. old, do you think? 
Yeah. No, we saw it on the news afterwards. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, our school didn't do stuff yeah. like that. You had to have a Catholic. teacher have a nervous breakdown to get that <laughs> AV cart pulled in and watch some dumb movie. They would not give you that for just anything. Well, television is the devil. Right. <laughs> and it'll rot your brain. Now open to Ephesians 629. <laughs> so now let's talk about the Challenger, um, the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Okay. So on Tuesday, January 28th, 1986, a crowd of hundreds gather at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral in Florida for the Space Shuttle Challenger's 10th launch. The shuttle's primary mission is to deploy the second tracking and data relay satellite, TDRS-B. You don't have to do that. I mean... <laughs> Why did Jay even I feel... Jay? I, I'm weirdly kissing up to like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the person... Remember the guy we met at, that works at JPL? I wish I could remember his name <laughs> off the top. I'm so sorry. He's he was not the listening. best. Don't worry. <laughs> no, he was a fan. Him and his wife loved the show. Okay. And he was super cool and he gave me and... Stephen and Scotty Landis are really good tour right. of JPL. The the guy who gave us tours, Lou, and his wife's name is Lindsay. <gasps> Lou at JPL and your wife Lindsay. Hi, friends. Thank you. Okay. So that satellite helps astronauts in space communicate with ground control. So they're basically putting up more communication satellites. Okay. But their second mission is to release a small satellite called the Spartan Halley spacecraft, which would follow and observe Halley's Comet for two days. Remember when that was such a big deal? Yeah, I remember that. So um, and then after two days, it would be picked back up by the Challenger crew before they return home. So the Challenger is the second space shuttle ever to reach outer space. It completed nine missions over the course of three years and was the same shuttle that Sally Ride manned three years before as the first American female astronaut to go into space. Connections. Love Boom. them. There it is. I must have known deep down. OK, mm -hmm. so on board are five NASA astronauts. Commander Francis Richard, a.k.a. Dick Scott. Kobe, pilot Michael J. Smith, and three mission specialists, Ronald McNair, Ellison, Onizuka, and Judith Resnick. And the sixth crew member is a payload specialist named Gregory Jarvis. So a payload specialist is not an official NASA astronaut. They're brought on the mission by NASA because of they have certain academic training or skill uh -huh. sets that are needed for a particular mission. Uh -huh. So they're trained rig rigorously by NASA, um, but they're usually researchers or engineers. But they're not allowed to look outside the window. <laughs> <laughs> They're banned from looking out at space. You have to earn that. Yeah, that's right. You have to be a real astronaut to get the view. <laughs> and you certainly can't touch that arm. Sa Sally only. S Sally's tennis elbow. Do not touch Sally's racket. Her space racket. Yeah. Okay. So the seventh and last crew member on this mission is 37-year-old Krista McAuliffe. So she is a high school social studies teacher from Aww. Concord, New Hampshire, who won the Reagan administration's Teacher in Space Project. So she's trained by NASA and... As well, I'll talk about the teacher and space project in a little bit. But, I wish you would, because <laughs> I know you're baffled. What could that mean? I don't know what that. Wait, they bring space back to a classroom. Well, hold on a second. They make a teacher stand in a certain space and teach. So she gets trained by NASA as the mis mission's second payload specialist. Okay. In addition to her regular onboard duties, uh, she also planned to teach two 15-minute lessons from space. So the first would involve a tour of the space shuttle to explain the basics of how it functions and then the second one about the benefits of space travel and both of them will be broadcast to millions of students through Aww. a closed circuit classroom TV system. I was five so I bet that we were doing that. Right. Right? Well I think it was they were seeing it as 
uh, first of all, the Reagan administration did a ton of cuts to education and the and the funding. They sure did. So they're like, here's how to get all of them at once. Yeah. So they were. This was this thing where they're like, well, we'll do something nice for teachers. It'll make us look good. Yeah. But then also we'll get people because you know NASA had having been so right. huge in the late sixties, had interest had had waned. Yeah. Um. So they were like, they're gonna beef it all back up again. Guess and, what, guys? Yeah. This was the way they were gonna do it. So at eleven thirty eight a. Um, after several delays that morning, the shuttle lifts off in front of an audience of hundreds on the ground at Cape Canaveral and millions more watching on their TVs at home and in classrooms across the country. Uh. But just 73 seconds after liftoff, disaster strikes. Okay, so let's go and talk about Krista McAuliffe uh, more specifically. She was originally Sharon Krista Corrigan from Boston, Massachusetts, and she followed the space program very closely as a child. She watched John Glenn's Orbit of the Earth and Friendship 7 in 1962 and of course the 1969 Apollo moon landing. She was fascinated by all of it. So, she grows up uh, to marry her high school sweetheart Stephen McAuliffe in 1970. They have two kids named Scott and Caroline. And in 1984, when President Reagan announces the initiation of the Teacher in Space program, Krista finds out about it and she rushes to apply. Uh There are 11,000 teacher applicants from all over the country. And wow. I was reading this article about it and that one of the guys who was one of the finalists said that they had 11 different essay portions <sighs> of that application because they were trying to weed out the people yeah. that were just trying to be like, oh, I want to, you know, I'm just in it for the fame like, and glory or yeah, or something like that. But it was like, if you, if you're going to actually write 11 essays, you really want to go out, go to outer space. We've done it. <laughs> You got to commit. We obviously want to go to outer space. So, so Krista gets nominated by the state of New Hampshire, and then she goes on to become one of the 10 finalists selected by an official review panel in Washington, D.C. God, those people had to read so many fucking essays. I mean, I bet you they didn't. Though. Yeah, but they were like three words in. Now, like, did they even finish the essay? Okay, <laughs> then put it in this pile. So on July 7th, 1985, Krista McAuliffe and the other nine finalists travel to Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas for a week of briefings, medical exams and interviews. And when that week's over on July 19th, 1985, Vice President George H.W. Bush announces that the winner of the teacher in space program is, in fact, Krista McAuliffe. She takes a year long leave of absence from teaching and begins training for the mission. Wow. How incredible. Yeah. Must that have felt. Just an amazing opportunity. And like you would never in your life think that that's what you would get to do. Once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. So cool. Okay. So the Challenger's launch is initially set for January 22nd, 1986. But the team at NASA encounters a couple different delays. So first, another mission had run long. So they can't launch the Challenger until the other mission comes back, um, which I think is kind of funny. It's, wait in line. <laughs> it's like, is this Southwest Airlines? <laughs> like, it's weird that you wouldn't schedule this a little further apart. Yeah. But that was basically what happened. Or like, so. is the schedule that random that it might take one day or it might take yeah, seven like, days? You know, we, we hung out here by the uh, Big Dipper for a little too long. <laughs> we decided to go to the Hour Space Snack Bar. <laughs> hang out. <laughs> Sorry. It's just like the one at Stanford. <laughs> so that was the first delay. The second, then the launch is delayed because of bad weather. And the third delay is caused by technical issues. First, there's a broken exterior latch, and then there's a stripped bolt. So finally, the launch date is set for January 28th, 1968. No. Uh, nope. Jan- <laughs> wow. 
Finally, the launch date is set for January 28th, 1986. But the day before the engineering company, it's called Thiokol. Um, they're responsible for some of the construction. They tell NASA that they believe it'll be too cold to launch because the forecast is calling for temperatures as low as 30 degrees Fahrenheit in Florida, which oh. is kind of insane. It is January, but it's Florida. Yeah. Um, and that actually, that temperature is the bare minimum that you can launch a shuttle mm. at. And so they recommend postponing it. But the NASA manager that was in charge of the launch says that they can't recommend a delay without proposing a minimum temperature to target. So they all hop on a conference call to Ugh. discuss it. Guys, don't leave it up to conference calls for to real. fix shit. I got to this part in the paragraph and I was just like, God, I hate conference calls. <laughs> but engineers love them. So they get on the horn. Everyone starts talking. The people from Thiokol, they reiterate their concerns. They explain that the rubber O-rings used to seal the joints on the solid rocket boosters, mm -hmm. which from now on I'll call SRBs because that's what they call them. I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> the SRBs. Uh-huh. Okay, so these O-rings are confirmed to function at 54 degrees Fahrenheit at the lowest. So any temperature below that could be dangerous. What? So if the primary O-rings fail, there are secondary ones that kick in. If those fail, the shuttle could destruct. Guys. So now the NASA officials on this conference call, they dismiss the concerns. They're convinced the secondary O-rings will get the job done if the first ones don't. You shouldn't um, plan for something to fail, right? Wait. No, and you shouldn't be like, but then, yeah, it's not that big of a deal where it's yeah. like... These other things will take care of it. I think this is the kind of thing where, in retrospect, it yeah. seems inane. Totally. But in this kind of, like, very bureaucratic world where they're like, look, we gotta hit these schedules. Pushing it a couple days is probably hundreds it's of millions of dollars. dollars. Yeah, probably. Millions, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, we're, we're both wrong. <laughs> we're definitely both wrong. Both are very wrong. I feel like of all the conversations I can be wrong in, one's about being an astronaut mm. it, uh, is really up there. Yeah. But basically, they're just saying, I, I can't, we can't just keep on delaying sure. this. Like, we, this is, there's so much press about it. Everyone's totally. waiting and watching. We understand that you guys are kind of worried, but it's fine, right. basically. So on the morning of March 28th, the temperature in Florida is 28.9 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. The launch pad is covered in ice. Mm -mm. So a team works to remove the ice, but the temperatures are, you know, dangerously low. They delay the launch a bit to give the ice more time, the ice team more time to clear the ice. Mm -hmm. You know, they're out there with their ice picks. Yeah. <laughs> How, how we, how how we you, know they do. How you know they get rid of ice. Yeah. Okay, so when that team report, when the ice team reports that the ice does seem to be melting, they reset the launch for 11.38 a.m. And so at exactly 11.38 a.m., the countdown begins. The crew ignites the solid rocket boosters, the SRBs. <laughs> Thank you. And the shuttle lifts off. <gasps> but just as Thiokol feared, the O-rings in the right SRB are too cold to function properly, and the joint in the right SRB fails. Pressurized burning gas escapes from that booster interacts with the external fuel take and 73 seconds after liftoff, the Space Shuttle Challenger explodes over the Atlantic Ocean. Millions of Americans are watching live, including thousands of children, probably tens of thousands yeah. of children watching from their classrooms and Krista McAuliffe's yeah. family who are watching in person at Cape Canaveral on the ground. Can you imagine the kids in her class back at home oh, watching? Just... 
I mean, I that someone. Oh, I think it was April because she, she yeah. was like, I saw that. I remember seeing yeah. it. I was in second grade, and she said the teach her teacher burst into tears and just rolled the TV back out of the room. Fuck. Like you, every the entire nation was traumatized yeah. all together at once. This on that morning, you can you can watch the video online and like think of think of watching it live. You know, and like it fucking explodes. Like, there's no question, it explodes. No, it's not like oh, there seems to be a problem. Right. It's just like out of nowhere, this thing that everyone had been looking forward to that they'd been talking that about, we, and like it feels so patriotic. Yes, right. Like we're all we're all like it's so hopeful. Yeah, it's like they were kind of trying to recapture right. the initial that you know those early days yeah. of space exploration. It's like we're back and we're strong and we're doing all and this we stuff. Have teachers with us. It's <sighs> for the children. They're civilian billions on that show. Yeah. So it goes without saying none of the seven crew members survive. Mm-hmm. After the explosion, NASA's launch recovery director sends search and rescue teams to recover the victims' bodies um, and the debris. The recovery is so extensive it lasts more than a week. Mm-hmm. When it comes to sharing information with the press, NASA becomes very closed off. They tell the public almost nothing, um, which of course all of America is demanding answers. Yeah. So Reagan commissions a committee to investigate what exactly would be um so Reagan com- commissions a committee to investigate what exactly caused the explosion that is the Rogers um commission mm-hmm. which Sally Ride served on mm-hmm. the chairman was William P Rogers politician and lawyer who previously served as attorney general and secretary of state there are 13 members total including Neil Ar- Armstrong and Sally Ride commission finds that NASA neglected to heed the very real and very important warnings from Thiokol over the course of several years leading up to the disaster uh-huh. so there were engineers at um, at other in other parts of NASA that were that were checking it out and going, hey, we need to be careful about these. The I think the O rings, just the that whole idea. There were warnings that happened before, oh, you know, no. the day of. It wasn't just the temperature yeah. issue. Or these things that were made for this rocket aren't going to work right now. It's like these have been made for years, right? And they're ignoring the warnings because I think you know, it's the, obviously, that's the kind of thing that gets tested and looked yeah. at and investigated constantly. Totally. Um, NASA's insistence that the secondary O-rings were enough of a safety measure went was against protocol because the O-rings were listed as a critically one component. So this means that if the component fails, everyone could die. Uh, so it is actually forbidden to rely solely on the backup part yeah. for something like an O-ring. I mean, that makes fucking sense. I'm not an astronaut. But you're right. But at the same time, they created a very untenable situation with the pressure mm-hmm. where they, you know, they can't just keep delaying it. And yeah. it does doesn't look good if you're, you know, it's everything about that. When I was reading this part anyway, I just felt so terrible for the team that was trying to make this decision of like, can we just do this? They were used to it. This was like, you know, this was a thing. The shuttle went up a lot. Totally. And it was probably like, there's always some critical thing that needs to be decided on last minute. Right. This is just another one of those. Yeah. Afterwards, the U.S. House Committee on Science and Technology holds hearings on the matter as well. On October 29th, 1986, they released their report uh, that agrees and goes along with the Rogers Commission. They ruled the disaster was due to poor technical decision-making by top NASA and contractor personnel, effectively splitting the blame between NASA and Thiokol. As a result, NASA is unable to launch any other shuttles or spacecraft for nearly three years. Uh, And they work on a total redesign of those um, SRBs. And in the case of the Challenger, Thiokol gives up their multi-million dollar incentive fee in exchange for not accepting liability. But afterward... 
because they I'm sure they were like, yeah. we told you. Right, right. But afterward, NASA adds a clause to their contract with that company stating that in the event of a technical failure causing, quote, loss of life or mission, that Thiokol would for forfeit $10 million of its incentive fee and formally accept the blame. Okay, so the remains of crew members are recovered. And on April 29th, 1986, astronauts Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, and Michael Smith are all buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Mission specialist Ellison Onizuka is buried at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. Ronald McNair is buried at Lawn Memorial Park in Lake City, South Carolina, and Krista McAuliffe is buried in her hometown, Concord, New Hampshire, at the Calvary Cemetery. Every year in late January or early February, NASA holds its Day of Remembrance to honor the lives lost in the Challenger tragedy, as well as those lost in the Apollo 1 fire of 1967 and the destruction of the Columbia in, 20, in 2003. And in 2015, the Kennedy Space Center opened an exhibit called Forever Remembered, where visitors can see debris from the Challenger's final mission. So this is pretty cool. Instead of building a monument for their loved ones, the families of the Challenger crew established a Challenger Center for Space Science Education Program, basically introduces students to space science and provides space simulation missions that kids can experience for themselves firsthand. And the program gives them the chance to learn teamwork and problem solving and encourages them to explore the world around them. And it's grown to be an international success, serving more than 200 250,000 kids globally every year. And that is the heartbreaking national trauma that was the explosion of Space Shuttle Challenger. Wow. Great job. Way to make good, uh, make good. It's a make good story. That's a make good. It's a make good horror story. That's but right. Those are, I'm glad I know the difference now and we'll never make that mistake again. And we'll very quickly and sharply correct people. When we all they do. Make it. <laughs> well, that was great. Thank and you. I'm glad you did that. It Me was, too. That was a, that was a good one. Thank you. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com slash murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like 
perfectly scrambled eggs. Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. I got this suggestion from the fan cult forum. We have a message board of suggestions that people I know. send in. <laughs> and they send them in and they write them with their finger. They type them, Karen. Do you know? How Is to, it still in all caps? It's a CB <laughs> message. Yeah, it's still in all caps. So this was suggested by C. Baird. And this is a story that is the craziest one I had never heard of. Really? So this is the Corpsewood Manor Murders. I love it already. Any idea of it? It doesn't sound familiar okay, to me. Great. I got info from inge- uh, Investigation Discovery. <laughs> what if Investigation Discovery is just <laughs> weird shit people ingest? They're like, look, a whole saw. <laughs> How did she ingest that? Let's take an Investigation Discovery. <laughs> An article by Christine Colby, an All That's Interesting article by uh, Gina DeMuro, a website called AbandonedSoutheast.com that is a person who is a photographer and goes around to all these abandoned buildings and yes. places in the Southeast, takes photos and tells you the story about them. Okay, there was, a, a, in one of my first very difficult and uh, highly demanding office jobs mm-hmm. where I was basically there from nine in the morning till nine at night, mm. when I finally would have a moment to myself... That those are the websites I would go on They're to. Incredible people taking pictures of like this used to be a steel mill, right? And now it's literally rusting top to bottom, Ugh. and no one's allowed in here. And when you go here at night, you hear weird sounds. Or yeah, whatever. there's like a, there's you know high schools that have lockers and their desks are all still. I mean, they get to go in all of those places, and they t- and they're beautiful photos, and they tell you about them. So yep. go check that out. It's abandonedsoutheast.com. Um, I got an article from the Chattanooga Times Free Press by Tyler Jett, uh, a website called Week in Weird article by Ken Summers, Rome News Tribune article, uh, the lineup.com article. There's a lot of articles out there about this by Oren Gray. And then um, I checked our emails and my favorite murder emails and someone, this person by the name of S.A. Hunt, who's an author of like gothic fantasy, interesting novels. Uh, it's S.A. Hunt kind of like broke the whole story down for me using quotes from different authors who've written about this this story. Amazing. So it was really helpful. And then I also got one article from the website uh, for Church of Satan. Hell yes. By Peggy Nadramia. Okay. All right. So mm. you know this is going to be something. The Church of Satan's involved. Exactly. Let's do this thing. All right. Here we go. In the 1970s, 
Dr. Charles Scudder was a professor of pharmacology at Loyola University in Chicago, and it was at the Institute for Mind, Drugs, and Behavior. Mm. Guess what that means? Acid? That's right. (laughs) That Uh, is right. They basically performed government-funded experiments with mind-altering drugs like LSD. Fucking what's up, MK Ultra? What's up? Yeah, nice. Welcome to the party, MK Ultra. Now, did these people know they were being experimented? I don't know any details. Okay, but probably not. Meet Ted Kaczynski. Hello, <laughs> and then we go down that route. Right, hole. that's not okay. So um, he was described by coworkers as brilliant and soft-spoken, but confident. Uh, he was definitely an eccentric, especially for the you know kind of conservative university in the seventies. He would dye his hair purple. Ooh. At one time, he owned a monkey. <laughs> Uh-huh. He was kind of an, it, like he seems like a perfect absurdist and contrarian and organ grinder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did your monkey have a vest? That's right. Dr. Scudder uh, was divorced and had four grown sons and he lived in a deteriorating mansion in Chicago along with his two enormous English Mastiff dogs. Ooh. You know, those big guys with all the drool and the yep. face uh, alongside <laughs> in the face, <laughs> the big faces <laughs> yep. alongside a, quote, quite feminine man named Joseph Odom. So it being the 1970s and being gay still considered very taboo. Joseph Odin was described as a housekeeper and a, quote, companion to Dr. Scudder. Sure. But in reality, the two men were in a longtime relationship. And in fact, um, Joseph Odom went by Joey, helped to raise Dr. Scudder's kids. Oh, so they were they were companions. Yeah. They were companions. <laughs> they were in a relationship. They were life partners. They were life partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the mid-70s, Dr. Scudder was fed up with university politics, the constant upkeep and bills related to his fucking dilapidated home, <laughs> and the general bullshit hustle and bustle of life in a big city. And probably also not getting to live his life as an openly gay man, right? Yeah, there'd be a lot of restrictions. I think also Chicago being very Midwest and yeah. kind of very tradition, a very traditional place. At least it felt like that when sure. I lived there. Where I, My friend wore overalls to Nordstrom one day, and these women were staring at us like we were nude. Wow. It was one of the weirdest experiences where I was just like, they're just overalls. Yeah. It's a fashion thing. Right. Okay. I like that. Mm-hmm. So he and Odom decided they were over it and they were ready to escape the chaotic city life. So uh, Dr. Scudder found a 40 acre plot of land in the Appalachian foothills. Appalachia. Appalachia. Deep in that. He, uh, so Dr. Scudder found a 40 acre plot of land in the Appalachian Appalachian? Throw an Appalachia. Appalachian foothills, deep in the remote woods of northern Georgia. So what were you saying about conservative? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they went out of the frying pan into the fire. That's right. He's like, I better dye my hair green now. <laughs> yeah. They were completely, so it was 40-acre plot, completely surrounded by, surrounded by national forests that he, he bought it for super cheap. And so in 1976, on his 50th birthday, Dr. Scudder resigns from Loyola University. Mm-hmm. Like later days, motherfuckers. See ya. Sold off or gave away all, nearly everything he owned and set off with uh, Odom and the dogs, whose name were uh, Beelzebub oh. and Arsenath, okay. to begin a new peaceful life in the Appalachians where they could build their dream home and live off the land. Wow. I don't know. This seems like the beginning of a horror movie. It is. Okay. So Scudder said that, quote, the change was like crawling out of an old outworn skin. 
Oh. Yeah. It's like super positive. When they arrived that first winter to what was basically just some old treed up land and... Uh, <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> treed up, up land. <laughs> Do you mean like forest? Treed up land. <laughs> no, I don't mean forest. Yes. <laughs> it got all treed up. It was their <laughs> land, but it was treed up. <laughs> This weren't no cleared out land. It was treed up. Treed up it from was, the floor. It was treed up to the gills. <laughs> it was at the top of a winding, a winding logging trail, and the the men looked around. They see these old, you know, these trees in the middle of winter, all gnarled and shit. And they were like, "This, let's name this new homestead Corpsewood." Mm, that was their idea. That was their idea. Okay, so, I thought you were gonna say they were gonna like let's tree this shit down. <laughs> <laughs> they're not they're from Chicago. Oh, that's right. <laughs> During the next two years, the men cleared the treed land. Pretty, and they used, treated it down as the term. Thank you. And f- used 45,000 bricks to build by hand what Scudder referred to as, quote, their castle in the country. So he, they weren't architects. They had never built anything before. They dug fucking trenches and laid down pipes for... Um, plumbing. Plumbing. But... They built it themselves. I don't know if you should. I don't know. Unless they're just, if it's just a plain old square, that's well, fine. But a castle? I think from back then, too, it was like you, you just did shit yourself. True. And I'm sure if, you know, college professor and like a housekeeper that's holding shit down, yeah. that maybe they're like, we've got this plan. Let's do it this way. Well, they did it. And wait till you see it. Oh. it's It looks like a legit medieval, like a small scale medieval macabre brick castle. Really? It's yeah, it's pretty cool. It's got a turreted entryway oh. and a winding staircase inside leading up to the second floor. They built fucking a second floor. Here's Steven Shower. Is that the is that the new one? Let me see. Is that the new one? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, they do in this one, it's the finished and it has a gargoyle. So that's adding to the creepiness. Spoiler alert. Super sorry. No. We can, okay. ta- we can take that out. No, no. Give it back to him because you're going to read too much. Well, I, I'm not reading anything, okay. but I'm just saying this is there is a real um, a, it's almost like the Blair Witch got like a designer. Yeah. And she's like, let's do this thing. <laughs> yeah. Because it's it. But it is. I'm telling you, I'm looking at this picture. It's treed up. It's treed up. There's trees so I'm all right. over can the I spot. Can I have you and Stephen apologize to me right no, now for laughing no, at me? Never. Damn it. OK, <clears throat> so. um Corpsewood Manor was almost completely self-reliant. I guess they had no electricity, but had an on-site well for water. Okay. It had a wood stove for cooking and for warmth, a chemical toilet in the outhouse, Uh. uh, gardens, and they grew their own food. And behind the house was a small vineyard for making homemade wine. Nice. So this was like a nice little villa that these two lovely gay men who wanted to get the fuck away from the confines of everyday society and their bullshit and judgment and fucking build their dream house. And they did it. They fucking did it. They did it. Yeah. In addition to the castle that they lived in, they also built a smaller building they called the chicken coop. (laughs) On the ground floor was a chicken coop. Okay. (laughs) So that makes sense there. Above that was like they kept the chicken feed and canned goods. And then on the top floor was something of a... A boudoir, yes. I would say, which you said that word earlier, and it's like in my story. Ooh. Like, holy shit. Psychic mm-hmm. lock in. There it is. So depending on where your info comes from, the 
the boudoir was either where the couple would host gatherings and for guests to stay overnight in, or it was a sexy sex room with BDSM paraphernalia and porn and stuff. Sure. I mean, look, first of all, it's natural. Do whatever you want. And secondly, they're not moving out into the woods to read books. (laughs) I'm telling you. And you know what? It could be both. It could be like they could do it all. Yeah. But why not? If you're out there anyway, like if you're getting away from everybody and you're away. Yeah. Do what you want. Exactly. Get a slide from the boudoir down to the chicken coop. That's right. See what happens. (laughs) Prying eyes, man. (laughs) Uh, Either way, it was nicknamed the pink room. Okay. So I think they and they would have guests from out of town come stay with them. I think I think um, Dr. Scudder, who was such an eccentric, had like friends from all walks of life and like to hang out with them. I would love it. I would be friends with Dr. Scudder immediately. He was probably the coolest person to hang out with. Hell yes. And, and he had acid, right? That guy? Yeah. Is <laughs> he the yes. acid guy? Yes. And Joseph Odom over here was an incredible cook mm-hmm. and like super sweet and lovely. So like they were so much fun. And all their food was organic. I, yeah. Which is great for me because I'm <laughs> you're <laughs> super organic. I'm so vegan. <laughs> Thank you. Finally, it's the food up to my level of quality that I'm looking for. That's right. Karen's so picky. God, when we're on the, the road. Ugh. I'd be like, Jerry, are there any GMOs in this? Because I can't have it anymore. Karen, we're at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Does this rice pilaf have pre- preservatives in it? <laughs> okay. And there is a pink gargoyle in there. Oh, was that the one? The, the one, one outside you said was pink. Yes, that's kind of genius. Okay, but here's a little thing. Here's oh. an eccentricity about Doctor Scudder. Okay, he was a card-carrying member of Anton Lavey's Church of Satan. Okay, all right. Yes. So that. You know, sorry, just just say really quick as a as a kid who grew up in the 70s, yeah. young child, because Anton Lavey had a house in San Francisco. Yeah, we're gonna talk about. Okay, but it. It was very scary and it was kind of used exactly. in this way. But actually, the Church of Satan is not scary at all. So it's, so here, let me, we're going to do a Satan corner real quick. Great. Technically, um, Dr. Scudder was an atheist who, quote, believed in the unity of the universe. But he was fascinated with religions. He was fascinated with the occult. And he, it seems that he enjoyed the kind of fuck it, like fuck the system, hedonistic, humanistic mentality of Satanism, which, guys, that's what Satanism is. Yeah. Technically, atheistic Satanism does not acknowledge the existence of either God or Satan. Mm-hmm. They're fucking atheists. Mm-hmm. All that satanic panic, evangelical bullshit, you know, don't buy into the hype guys your parents lied to you okay (laughs) so in a sense dr scudder when he issued his normal life in chicago and moved into the forest to live out his dreams is in line with his satanic beliefs right so uh he didn't actually believe in satan or the devil but as a symbol of self-reliance independence and individuality which is what satanic people stand for i don't know satanists it's kind of cool they like to stir shit up which i think is pretty in like this like funny like absurdist way yes that i appreciate well and also they're really about human rights right because it's that kind of thing of saying you don't get to say um you know abortion is illegal and immoral therefore i'm going to kill you because that in and of itself is so so hypocritical yeah. and so insane. And it's like they you don't get to pray in school. If you're going to pray to a Christian God in school, then they're going to come around and sue that fucking school district to say that the, that they get to say the satanic rituals in school. Like they just they yes. don't want satanic fucking prayers in school. No. They want to prove to you that these other religious uh, you know, these other religious entities shouldn't either. Right. Because they're saying, so you don't approve of my religion, right. which is quote unquote, the church of Satan. Yeah. 
and that's easy to, to, it's easy to understand why that's, you can't approve of that. Yeah. But they're saying, I don't approve of your religion. Right. Your religion is like the church of Satan to me. Right. And it also, it is a wake up call to when you are indoctrinated into the religion you were raised in, you see other religions as, uh, as not real. You see other people as believing and, and being lunatics yeah. and, and like, oh, they're extremists. They're, yeah. they're, you know, whatever zealots. And it's basically calling everyone on their shit and go, Going, that's what everyone is that when you're in a religion and it's not your own personal spiritual path but mm-hmm. instead this kind of group think and it's ways to control to alienate yep. and to then justify your attacks on other people guys take lsd and open your minds <laughs> also look at what shirt i'm wearing just now i realized i, I haven't hebrews. done my laundry there's <laughs> a big star of david and it says hebrews on my shirt right now well that's bullshit man I i'm jewish i'm gonna sue you I'm an atheistic Jew. What am I going <laughs> to do about it? What are you going to do? Okay. So. This is interesting. Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> I just want to get across how sweet they seemed and how fun they seemed. Yeah. And um, and how independent and they just wanted to live their lives. Yeah. Back in a time where you really were not allowed no. to. You were not. No. So because he was so interested in the occult, Dr. Scudders, and then I put hashtag decor inspo uh, was all kinds of strange macabre objects and antiques in fact when um, he left Loyola University he took with him two skulls uh. two like ancient skulls that he used as decor um, which is such a like goth high school decor thing to do yeah it's very metal and some vials of LSD well hell yeah <laughs> um, he was also <laughs> about to get treed up I out mean, there we're gonna sit out there and make friends with the motherfucking trees is what's gonna crap in get, you're gonna climb them you're, you're gonna, gonna climb get them get all up in them you're gonna become a tree yourself mm-hmm. so he was also an artist he created stained glass window pieces that he used as the windows of a house mm. including a stained glass Baphomet Sigel Baphomet yeah did I say that right mm-hmm. which is the symbol of the church of Satan which is that cute little goat Hi, I'm the goat. Yeah. A pink gargoyle. I told you about that. Um, And a sign outside that read, beware of the thing. Which nice. is actually from the Adams family. So is clearly it? he was a playful Satanist. Well, and also, it's almost like they built the perfect house to draw high school students right. to come around. And to get like the locals to start talking about them. Yes. And either maybe even stay away, like get yeah. scared of them or... But I, I bet it's going to go a different way. Unfortunately, they should have gone to Northern California to do that. Yeah, where all the hippies were. And exactly. Like, Chill, man. That's funny. Right. So despite the locals living in the neighboring town of Chattooga uh, County being scandalized by these two gay Satanists, the kindness and hospitality that Scudder and Odom, you know, uh showed to the neighbors was evident and they were always willing to have guests over to enjoy a few glasses of their homemade wine or listen to Dr. Scudder professionally. He was a, he could professionally play the harp as well. Holy shit. Yeah. So, uh, it seems like a lot of the neighbors became to, uh, or started to like them. Dr. Scudder and Odom spent six years living in their dream home, building and digging and caring for the land. They made friends with some of the locals. There was a wedding hosted in the rose garden that Odom had planted. Wow. And when local hunters would come by and ask the couple for permission to hunt on their land, they would always allow it. Great. And this is how it's thought that they came into contact with a 17-year-old local named Avery Brock. 
Brock was a hunter and a part-time truck driver, and he had um, been invited to Corpsewood a number of times to hang out in the pink room. Um, and there's some speculation that at one point he possibly engaged in sexual activities with either both or one of the um, one of the pair. Mm-hmm. But it seems as though Brock became friends with the couple and hung out and drank wine with them and, on a couple occasions. Yeah. So in November 1982, though, Avery Brock moves into a trailer that belonged to a 30-year-old unemployed construction worker named Tony West. And Brock told West about the, quote, queer devil worshippers and how he thought that because Scudder and Odom, they lived this life that was so laid back and carefree and, you know, kind of indulgent that they must have a shit ton of money stockpiled at Corpsewood. Oh, no. Right. So Brock and West began devising a plan to rob the couple and run away to start a new life. <sighs> On the night of December 12th, 1982... Brock and West picked up two teens, uh, Joey Wells, who was West's nephew, and his girlfriend, Teresa Huggins. And the teens had tried to go on a date, but their car wouldn't start. So Brock and West were like, just come with us. We're going to go drink at the Satan house or whatever. Um, And once there, the group were invited in by Dr. Scudder. They drank wine and uh, the local kids huffed what was locally known as Toodaloo. What? Toot a loo, <laughs> aka paint thinner and glue. No, they had a name and they would just huff this stuff. Toodaloo, and then Scudder's be- like, I have pure LSD. What more do you need? Or gorgeous wine right. that we ma- made ourselves? He gave them the wine, but it doesn't seem like he actually used or gave out the LSD. It might have just been this like kind of souvenir he brought from Loyola. So he wasn't drugging kids. He wasn't. It doesn't seem like he was selling it. Maybe his out of town friends would take it. Who knows? Sure. Um. After several hours of drinking and talking, Brock said he was going out to the car to mix up some more toodaloo. But when he returned, he was holding a rifle. And uh, West held a knife to Scudder's throat as he was tied up and led from the pink room to the main house, which no one was allowed in the main house, which is maybe why also why the pink room is where people stayed. Oh, so they like hung in the chicken coop. That yeah. was like the party the spot. Upstairs BDSM maybe room. Okay. Um, so they take him into the um, main house while he's tied up. And all the while, Scudder himself is trying to calm the two teens down who ha- they hadn't been aware of what was happening. And oh. they were scared for their lives. Um, they attempted to get the fuck out of there, but the car wouldn't start. Oh, no. So they had to come back and like be there for this whole thing. Um, and so when Dr. Scudder was led into the home, he and his partner had built with their own hands and had just tried to live a fucking nice life together without stupid fucking society coming down on them. He was met with a horrific scene. Uh, Joseph Odom, his longtime companion, lay dead on the floor, having been shot in the head four times by Brock. Oh, no. Alongside the couple's two beloved dogs. They, he killed the dogs, too? Yeah, before they brought. So they basically went in and killed everyone in the house, Every every living thing in the house uh-huh. and then brought Dr. Scudder down to Ugh. this scene. Ugh. So like, it's just so the thought of seeing this thing and not only is the love of your life, you see that horrific scene, you know, you're ne- like, it's just over. Yes. What a terrifying last scene. Yeah. Teresa Hudgens later divulged that when Dr. Scudder saw his love dead on the floor, he sputtered and babbled inco- incomprehensibly and moaned in grief. Oh. And he was led to the library and gagged while Brock and West demanded him. They tell him demanded he tell them where the money was hidden. 
But here's the thing. While it's true that Scudder did receive a small trust fund from his deceased father's estate, it was like $100 a month. Almost every cent he and Odom had had gone towards building the property. So there was no money to be stolen. There was no cash there ever. Yeah. And they just lived the way they wanted to live. Yeah. Um, at this point in his grief... And so Scudder is trying to calm Teresa down and saying, are you okay? Like in his own fucking grief, he's trying to calm her down, which she says she says she always remembered. Um, he defies the robber's orders and stands up from the couch and stumbles towards his lover's body. And his final words were, I asked for this. Oh, then he was shot in the head five times at point blank range. Oh, my God. The murderers took anything of value they could find, like a silver candelabra, a gold-plated dagger, a leather jacket. And since their car wouldn't start, stole uh, Scudder's black Jeep and went on the lam. And then two days later, on December 16th, a neighbor called the county sheriff after visiting Corpsewood Manor and noticing bullet holes in the door. And that's when their bodies were found. And that same day, Teresa Hudgens went to the police saying that she had escaped from Joey Wells' house where he had been holding her captive since the murders. Because the murderers were like, if you fucking tell anyone, we'll kill you. So he'd been like trying to get her not to tell. But she escapes and tells the police and Hudgens and Wells cooperated with the police and they're not charged. But now the police are on a nationwide manhunt for Brock and West. The killers drove West and uh, needing to ditch the black Jeep that they had stolen because it was too uh, conspicuous because fucking Dr. Scudder had painted pentagrams in on the doors <laughs> and that's the fucking car they stole. <laughs> assholes um they uh they held up a man at a mississippi rest stop intending to steal his car and the man is cooperating he's navy lieutenant kirby phelps he's on his way home to visit his mother for christmas and uh west marches him into the woods and shoots him twice oh my god and kills him they're 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 like going berserk yeah Totally. Um, don't do toodaloo, everyone. God. Yeah, real for real. <laughs> I just realized that. Yeah. They're right? on they're huffing paint thinner. Paint thinner and what? Glue. Yeah, that's not good. No. Um, the killers took Kirby Phelps's car and kept going, but within a short time both of them had turned themselves in. During the investigation. So this is this is almost the worst part. <laughs> it's really all awful. During the investigation, the police found what they, of course, consider to be bizarre artwork strewn throughout the home, um, dark occult, you know, Satan-y shit. So they're like, these men were Satan worshipers. And uh, Tatuga County investigator Tony Gilland said, you could feel the presence of evil. As if, like, <laughs> Satan was there. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. The evil had actually come from the two killers who identified as Christian and, in fact, just attended a Bible study two days before their murders. See? I mean... You know what I mean? Look, it's... Listen. It, you can't do it. it. It's not that simple. If it's only not. it were that simple that you could be guaranteed, if you go to Bible study, you, you leave there and you'll never do anything bad. Right. And then if you have uh, pentagrams on your Jeep, that means you always do bad things. Right. If life were that uh-huh. easy and that black and white, we would all be so much calmer and having a better time. Totally. But actually, people use religion to hide right. their own evil sociopathic bullshit. Or, and this drives me crazy, maybe it's because my religion that I was raised in doesn't have this, but you'll be forgiven for whatever the fuck you do. You're going to be forgiven, so it's all okay. That's not a thing. No. 
Well, not with murder. I mean, no. not with st- not with this kind of stuff. No. And also, I can't. I'm like, what if you bet on it and you're wrong? You know. But also, Don't I can't. Those, that's not. They're not real Christians if they're if they actually think, oh, I can kill these people. I can do what I want. I can kill these people, and then I'll be forgiven. Right. Like it. Yeah. That's not. That's not actually what Jesus wants for anybody. <laughs> Promise. Swear. I knew him first <laughs> as a Jew. <laughs> Um, but I made really me. good friends with him at camp. <laughs> he told me. Okay. Among the couple's possessions was a self-portrait that Scudder had painted, because he was an artist, showing himself. It, it, there's like a um, gag on him and five bullet wounds to his head. Stephen, pull it up. And they found a number of books on the occult, several bottles of LSD, and homosexual pornography. And right. so, of course, they're like these evil men, almost, you know, saying they deserved what they got right. in, in obvious ways. Meanwhile, what pornography would the police find on your computer oh right God. now? <laughs> and homosexual pornography can also, like in the 80s, it could be a book of art, of beautiful art of naked men by an amazing, talented photographer. Right. That's homosexual pornography to people who don't understand. And and also kind of the it's, celebration of this culture that up until very recently was entirely oppressed right. and threatened and like you couldn't. So you had to have your secret Toms of Finland book yeah. that people passed around yeah. because you everything you had, you know, yeah. so many or people they took couldn't fun naked be out. photos in the pink room, whatever. That's the painting. Oh, that's scary. Isn't that creepy? It's he, I so, almost like didn't want to include it because it's almost unbelievable that painting. We'll put it in the Instagram. Also, though, I the um the wounds on his head could be gunshot wounds, but also it, it's very similar to the wounds on Jesus's right. head from the crown of thorns. Totally. So it also could be that thing. It's symbolic. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty crazy coincidence. Right. That's just like a weird little tidbit that I like. I almost didn't want to. I mean, also that's a I. It could be that thing too, or that. The police are walking around and they're just getting scared and they don't yes. like feeling scared. I mean, the inside, you'll see the inside of the house. It's kind of creepy. It looks yeah. like a medieval and they have this like Baroque furniture and like, you know, super macabre shit. So I understand that it's creepy to these people who live in fucking Laura Ashleyville, but like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> and they're, it's like they're goths. They're just goths that went to the woods. Totally. Okay. Da, da, da. Okay. So of course this whole thing turns into a media circus. Local news reporters are more interested in the couple's issues and eccentricities and the, the devil worshipers than finding actual justice. So they become essentially what everyone thinks is like one of the most tragic victims of the satanic panic or early victims of the satanic panic. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's rumors about the couple's lifestyle, that they had homosexual orgies, that they raped children and there's drug use and all these things happening. It's just all these rumors. And of course, you know, everyone in town goes nuts with these rumors. And the sheriff had previously tried to bring charges against them for their behavior, the Scudder and Odom, but found it was protected under the freedom of religion. Yeah. You know? Right. Thank God. Thank God. Thanks, (laughs) Satan. So, of course, in public opinion, many people thought that they deserved to die for these reasons. And that's what really bothered me about when I first found this um, article in the fan or this story in the fan cult. And I looked it up. And the first couple articles I read, the subject line would be to Satanists, you know, get murder. It's just like kind of is still doing that and blaming them. Yeah. And then I read into it and it's the saddest fucking story I've ever heard. Mm hmm. 
about these two very innocent victims. Some people hypothesize that if Navy Lieutenant Kirby Phelps hadn't been the third victim of Brock and West, then maybe the killers might never have even been tried for murder Mm -hmm. because so many people didn't fucking care or because the jury would have, uh, the jury of their own peers would have Said, it. Yeah, it's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really sad. Um, eventually, West is found guilty of two counts of murder and sentenced to death. And Brock pleads guilty and received three consecutive life terms. And they've both been denied parole many times. And in the mid-1980s, a fire burned down uh, Corpseville Manor. And today... There is remnants of like brick brick ruins, and that's all that stands of Scudder and Odom's dream home. And in the on the website abandoned southeast, you can see all the photos. Oh wow! And it's like a beautiful old abandoned place that we would love to go to. Um, and teenagers and locals still sneak onto the property. Some of them steal the bricks that are left there, but everyone's like, they're cursed. And my f- best friend broke her knee when she, you know, was leaving or whatever. Um, she was drunk. Exactly. <laughs> she was on Tootaloo. <laughs> and, uh, they all think that it's, there's a curse there and everything like that, but it's like, no. Well, but, uh, if there's a curse, it's because two people were murdered. Right. Exactly. There's a small private funeral service held at Corpsewood Manor for Dr. Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom. Odom's ashes were scattered in the Rose Garden by his mm. family. And Dr. Scudder's ashes were taken back to Wisconsin by his sister and buried in the family plot. And as I said some of the articles still seem to like want to cast blame on them or make them s- these scary monsters but I did love that when I went to findagrave.com just to get some info someone listed Joseph Odom as Dr. Scudder's spouse yeah and it really and it was just this really lovely moment yeah uh, and that is the Corpsewood Manor Murders. Wow, I've never heard anything about it ever. Ever. That's incredible. Even when we've been in Atlanta, we've been in Georgia to do live shows. I wonder if it's because it is this, uh, m- the, because of the moralizing and the kind of like, this isn't the usual story. Right. Because, yeah, I wonder if that's the reason. And there's a shit ton of books about it. Um, the Corpsewood Manor Murders by Amy Petulia. Uh, the Corpsewood, A True Crime Like No Other by Daniel Ellis. Corpsewood, The Eyewitness Account, who actually is co-written by Teresa Hudgens. Wow. She tells her account of the whole thing. And there's a lot of gory details that I've left out, obviously. And then on MotherEarthNews.com is a... a an article that Dr. Scudder wrote about what it's like to live off the land. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of quotes from him in that as well. I, do, I wonder if in any of those books, there's the neighbors that they made friends with who were there to say. I think so. Yeah, this isn't. Yeah. I'm a local. I'm one of the people that you think would be against. And I'm there's a couple. I was friends with them. There's a couple of neighbor accounts that are like, yeah, like you could tell they talked about it late one night and he explained to them what Satanism really means to them. And they understood it. Right. Which is not that he believes in Satan. Yes. Because also, uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, in my hometown, it's very country and there's, you know, a lot of people that live way out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. And you would think that they would be, you know, you, the, the assumption is that, oh, it's, it's, you know, farmers conservative. or they're, yeah, they're conservative and closed minded and judgmental or whatever. And like when Christo in 1975, Christo built the running fence through Petaluma, it went through our town mm-hmm. and then out to the ocean. And it was, you know, Christo is this unbelievable French artist that does huge like site specific wow. uh, like it's like sculptures but this thing with the running fence I saw it I when know. I was five years old and it was the 
My dad has a picture of it in the living room. It's wow. that, it's so unbelievable and amazing. And all these um, farmers and dairymen and people who had the land that they wanted to run the fence along, yeah. they um, they fought for it. And they were <sighs> saying, you you know, we get to do anything we want with our land. You yeah. don't get to say because because oh, the local beautiful. like the local city council in Marin County and Sonoma County were trying to tell them you can't have that here. We don't want your friend art yeah. here we don't want your whatever but then the actual farmers who own the land were like screw you we can do you don't get to tell us yeah. what we do with our land and if we want them to do it they get to do it and then they let them they did Amazing. it and it was it's an incredible thing so i'm just saying you know yeah. i think sometimes people live out away from society everyone has the same idea we're like yeah we don't want that shit that group think mentality that oppresses other people just well it came down to two fucking Two bad seeds who were high on on greed and toodaloo and fucking just decided to take what they wanted and took the lives of two people who did not deserve to be... That they were friends with. That they yeah. act, acted like they were friends they with. That yeah. were kind enough to take them into their home. Yeah. Wow. It's really sad. Wow. That's a great story. Thank you. Okay. Should we read a couple fucking arrays? Let's do it. You want to go first? Uh, this one says, I'm going to be on Jeopardy. <gasps> It's been almost two years since I auditioned and to be selected is a pretty random stroke of luck. I don't feel very ready, but I'm listening to MFM as a break between intense studying Whoa. and all my deep anxiety over being TV, being on TV, doing math on the spot, not fucking up answers and trying to learn literally everything in the world. Yeah. You guys remind me to be here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> Did we say that? I'm, it sounds like something Vince would say. That's... <laughs> <laughs> and that quote, who cares if it's perfect, just do it. Yeah. And I also need to go to San Chicken while I'm in LA. Yeah. Thank you for so many um, ways you've been here for me over the last four years. And I hope I can share how much you mean to me on TV. Aww. Love A. Congratulations. That's incredible. What a Do you know that test is so hard. Yes, I know I so many really, really smart people who have not gotten on that show. This is called, this is from Bethany is killing it. And there are periods in the middle. That's why I said it like that. My fucking array is that I was recently accepted into a highly competitive naval officer program. I've been enlisted for almost 10 years and I never thought I'd be good enough to be an officer. But after years of my husband and mentors pushing me, I put in a package and was selected my first try. Wow. I want to use my eventual leadership position to show young women and men in the military that they are capable of anything. I've been through a lot of shit since I've been in, but I haven't let any of it keep me down. And I want to show young sailors that women leadership are just as capable as men wow congratulations cool? no name bethany she's killing oh, it oh. congratulations bethany that's amazing good work this one says uh being better than your parents <laughs> oh i see i missed the name on uh so this is from trouble cat okay. on the on the fan cult i just wanted to say fucking hooray to myself and all the other parents these days who are teaching their children that even adults have to say sorry to children when they fuck up mm -hmm. best lesson i'm teaching my kids is mom is human and mom can say sorry when she hurts your feelings that's amazing oh, i love that well done that's beautiful. Um, this is mine are from Instagram. Oh, hey, it's Kendall. That's who this is from. My fucking array this week might not be super deep, but I'm still incredibly proud of myself. Tonight, after months of student teaching, I'm submitting my final project to obtain my official teaching license. 
I was always told that it was a waste of time and money to become an educator, especially a high school art teacher, due to society's lack of respect and poor pay. Yet now more than ever, the world needs the language of art to remember what empathy, kindness, and grace looks like. Wow. This all starts with our youth who bring me so much joy and hope for a much brighter future than the world they are currently growing up in. Wish me luck, SSDGM. Good luck. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Um, this one's great. It says, my fucking hooray. Hi, MFM. I'm currently on my way home from a party where I met and chatted with the one and only Steve Buscemi. What? In parentheses, friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> he unnecessarily began with, what? hi, my name is Steve, as we shook hands, leading to a chummy joking exchange centered on coronavirus and the end of existence as we know it. Oh. Fucking hooray for my first celebrity interaction <gasps> and for my coworker, Bill, whose February 29th leap day birthday party sparked the meeting. Oh, (laughs) my God. SSDGM, Savannah. Savannah. That is, I'm so jealous of you. My face is on fire right now. It's the coolest. Of course, Steve Buscemi is the coolest. Of course he is. Introduces himself. Steve. Hi, Steve. It's me, Steve. Steve. I'm kind of like an ex-fireman. Anyway, (laughs) it's nice to meet you. We're all going to die of coronavirus. I have one more. Uh, Tara Sem says, here's my fucking hooray. I was recently on a slow down over a mountain pass, but we were moving steadily. It was a gorgeous, sunny, yet snowy day. We checked the Waze app to learn there had been an accident ahead, but it must have stalled traffic some time ago because when the traffic started moving faster, we came upon snowmen. Every few yards, someone stalled in traffic had built a sn- <laughs> and had built a snowman on the shoulder. Oh. There were miles and miles of snowmen. Some had faces some had arms and some had boobs <laughs> fucking hooray that's so, so good every time someone went and then stopped they would build a snowman Stop, and then went stalled and out now, I, now we're gonna do one like, boobs do it I love things like that because that's that's the like effect the group think effect that's the positive right. where it's like oh they're doing it I want to do it too yeah. or the like fun. I'm leaving this thing that someone else is gonna laugh at that I'm not going to see the, the result of but I'm doing it for someone else's joy yeah I love that that's great yeah what's yours what's yours okay um Um, (laughs) Okay. Okay. This is from Georgia Hardstark. (laughs) Grade five. Uh, Just today, I was at home in our cute little house, and I was working on my murder, and Vince is on the other side of the couch packing uh, merch for We Watch Wrestling, and I just stopped and thought how fucking cool it is. It's the middle of the day, and we're both working on projects that we love and that we're passionate about, and what uh, what, how grateful I am that we get to live that life mm-hmm. and that we're not working for the man. We're doing these things that we care about and, uh, and that mean a lot to us. And I didn't think that this was what being an adult got to be like. And it just made me really happy to see that. And I made him stop and he went, uh huh. Yes, baby. It's a very, yeah, yeah. No, we're really lucky. I have to go to the, I have to go vote and I have to go to the post office. <laughs> And it's just nice. And that also means I think that my new meds are working. <laughs> <laughs> that you get to have a moment where you stop and have yes, gratitude. The fact that and... I did that is like not. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's lovely. Uh, this fucking hooray brought to you by Quicken Loans. <laughs> uh, that's what I thought. We were like not working for the man. I'm like, we probably are working for a man we're, in a lot of ways. You're never not working for a man. But you know, what's funny. I was going to do uh, uh, our we had a fun like a network party because basically we've been working on this network for so long and there's people obviously all the podcasts that are on it currently but then there's a bunch that are coming and lots of people and waiting long 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 time for their Um, podcasts to come out but 
it was this really fun night and we it was one of those things where I was like we need to do a thing where we can just buy everybody a drink totally. and everyone can be in the same room and we can all be like we're doing a thing and then it just took on the life this life of its own and we ended up just like we tried we picked a place that was just super close to um, where we work so it would be kind of convenient for mm-hmm. everybody and it ended up being that room I'm not going to say where it was because I don't want everybody else going there <laughs> but it was the most beautiful room where I we just thought it was just going to be like the side room yeah. at this restaurant or whatever so you're talking about the room itself the room itself was so it gorgeous was that I was like oh this party's already a hit because yeah. we're in this space because we look classy as fuck for a long time my career was a bunch of decisions that felt bad and wrong yeah and you know I just did what I had to do but I kept kind of trying to course correct the decision making process so the next time I did something you know for a while it was like yeah, I have to do it for money because I'm in, yes. in terrible financial strait but then once it was like but I could still keep on trying to do additional things and mm-hmm. keep just keep on kind of like taking swings and see if I could just get a hit mm-hmm. just get a hit just get something going so to be standing in that gorgeous room with Danielle Kramer yeah. who is like, you know amazing and running, running, our, our, running network. our network Ugh. and is, she's a master and all the people that we've been working with it was it was like a true joy yeah. it was the coolest yeah I, I was totally on that gratitude train myself I love it it's very cool yeah and the lasagna cupcakes from heirloom uh, heirloom catering amazing uh, always a hit it's always a hit and guess what we wouldn't we would not have that party and we would not mm-hmm. have these moments and we would not have anything if it were not for you guys, the murderinos and the listeners who have been there for us and with us since day one. We are so fucking grateful for you guys. I, I can't believe it on a daily basis. It's amazing. And we really thank you and we really love you yep. and we're very proud of you. Yeah. And um, we're very proud of ourselves. Yeah. We want to we want to send it out into the airwaves. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That you guys are. Georgia pointed to the ceiling. Yeah, she did. Uh, we can't know. say it enough, though, because we really, yes. you know, thank it, you guys. You made it happen for us. You're you're making it happen for yeah. us. So thank you thank very much. You, thank you. Also, stay sexy and don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? <laughs> <laughs>